Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB. Unless you gather information and do a fulsome assessment, it's really difficult to know what immediate actions you could take because these are complex issues. Looking at the amount of, of goods and materials and services that you need to sustain there isn't something that you can figure out over a weekend. That is uh, Manitoba Emergency Measures Mike Gagne explaining the situation in Churchill, the response. I would like to categorize it as a lack of response, Tristan Field-Jones. We can talk about that a little bit more in a few moments. Sometimes the stars align in a fashion that you absolutely cannot predict. You and I have been planning to talk about Churchill for this first half hour of the program. Mm -hmm. We're visiting with Jeff Courier. We walk out the door and who should be sitting in what we affectionately term the green room, but Colin Ferguson of Travel at Manitoba and Tourism Manitoba. Colin, thank you for agreeing to sit down with us on such short notice. In my mind, the biggest concern as it pertains to Churchill is all the outstanding commercials, all the amazing effort that we have made to encourage individuals from around the world to come to this beautiful, this emerald, this gem on the shores of Hudson Bay. And my concern is, oh my gosh, we're not going to be able to get them there now. Can you alleviate my concerns on that? I I will do my very best to do so. First of all, thanks very much for having me. Thanks for dragging me out of the green room, which actually isn't green. But nonetheless, it doesn't really matter. (laughs) Very few green rooms are actually green. There you have it. Uh, The... um yeah, there's been a lot of concern, obviously, and and there should be a lot of concern. The the rail line is um, is not operational uh, north of Thompson, and for a lot of people, that is a means of transportation to get to Churchill to either see the blue whales, Northern Lights, or uh, or our polar bear viewing products. And thank you very much for that shout out on our commercials because those commercials have done a tremendous amount uh, to leverage a lot of traffic and interest in the Churchill market. So from that perspective, it's really good. Um, so the question is, how do we get a customer from A to B? Well, there's a number of options. First of all, those who still want to take the train, VIA will be offering service that will take you from uh, Winnipeg to Thompson, and then you can fly from Thompson to uh, Churchill via Comair. Uh, if you choose not to do that, you can also fly directly out of Winnipeg via Comair straight into Churchill. So... Um, while it may be a bit inconvenient in the planning stages at the outset, people have already, you know, they've already decided they were going to take rail the entire way or what have you. Uh, there are alternative uh, methods by which we can get people up to experience everything that Churchill has to offer. So we're, we're very hopeful that um, that will be the case and that, and that it will be um, um, a blip on a, on a, on a screen that is, is, uh, is not a big deal for them. So, you know, the one, the, the biggest challenge, of course, is making sure that you've got inventory up in Churchill and, and uh, you know, Comair and others are stepping forward. I know that there are more cargo planes going up. Um, larger items, I understand, can be barged in from other areas. I'm not too familiar with that entire process, but, um, it, you know, obviously there's concern. Churchill uh, is heading into its busy season and it attracts a lot of people and generates a considerable amount of revenue from a from a uh, tourism expenditures perspective. So, yes, we are concerned. We are working directly with VIA and Comair and other providers uh, and with the town of Churchill to make this as seamless as possible. But for the average customer, they do have alternatives to uh, to either 
uh, go from Winnipeg or go out of Thompson. And, and Colin, I have to ask, as a follow-up question, we were discussing this off-air, you mentioned that if you do a, a cost comparison, taking the plane from Thompson to Churchill is pretty equivalent to taking the train if we're in service. But one of the issues that's been raised by residents there is the cost of food, the cost of goods going up, because now it has to be flown in there. And with Omnitrack saying a lot of that infrastructure is going to be down for months, possibly not until the winter, uh, do you have any information on uh, on how these goods or how that could affect goods and services and food uh, being sent in to Churchill? Yeah, first of all, just to clarify, I think the cost of, of flying from Winnipeg to Churchill would be similar to taking a berth accommodation mm-hmm. in VF from Winnipeg to Churchill. Um, somebody who wants to go up into the Thompson area, there's going to be a bit of an increase uh, in the cost of uh, providing an air service into Churchill. That's dependent on what the customer wants to do and, and how their time frames work. Uh, in regards to the cost of goods and services, we are dealing with a remote Manitoba community. Costs are high regardless of the situation. Um, and uh, I don't have any information that's going to indicate that they're going to go up anymore. Uh, we're hoping that that line will be held, and that certainly is, is uh, how everybody is, is looking at this and operating from that perspective. Um, it's, a ch- it's a challenge getting goods and services into a, a remote community, and... Uh, we're going to be dealing with enhanced challenges this summer and uh, and possibly into the fall, hopefully not too much longer. Um, so, you know, uh, those individuals who are being serviced by, uh, by the rail line um, south of Thompson, that will continue. So um, a lot of the, the communities, sort of the necklace of communities, that uh, that dot the landscape up into the Thompson area will be will be not affected whatsoever. But uh, Churchill, we're going to do everything we can to make sure that it is as seamless and uh, works as smoothly as possible. Just and everybody and everybody's banding together to make sure that this happens. And just one question on tourism in Manitoba in general. While we have you here, and before we stop for a weather and forecast update. Tourism in Manitoba is a huge industry. It's over a billion-dollar industry. Where do we rank in terms of other provinces, in terms of revenue as it pertains to tourism? And how do we rank in terms of our spending and our investment in terms of marketing dollars on that same on that same list of, of provinces? Well, um, from a return on investment perspective, I think a lot of people would be surprised. Manitoba generates about $1.5 billion worth of tourism expenditures on an annual basis. Uh, and that fluctuates. Um, this particular, in 2017, with the Canada Summer Games coming, we're looking at uh, some, you know, some pretty healthy increases. So that that will um, that will be borne out uh, in, in the next short while. Um, we are currently ranking sixth, I think, and close to being fifth in terms of return on investment. So, you know, we're behind the big four: BC, Alberta, Ontario, and Quebec. And quite frankly, but with everything that they've got going for them in terms of direct air access, international air access, and the like. And the fact that they're investing, you know, eight, tenfold what Manitoba is investing um, is, uh, is, a, is a pretty clear indication that they're going to be tough to knock off. But uh, Manitoba is punching way above its weight class. One, we've got incredible product in this, in this marketplace. And some of our products are completely and utterly unique to the world. So our beluga whale viewing, our polar bear viewing, and we're one of the top three places to see the, the northern lights anywhere in the world. So I think from that perspective, it's very positive. Um, in terms of in terms of overall investment, uh, we have been uh, we've been lagging behind a bit, but uh, we are catching up. We've got a sustainable funding model that allows us to uh, to access more revenue as more revenue is generated, which is something that other jurisdictions across the country are now looking at. So we're going to catch them. Um, I'm not. Uh, I'm I'm very confident. Manitoba's got 
a great suite of products to offer, and uh, we just got to tell more people about it. They'll come. Colin Ferguson just happens to be in the building, joining Greg Mackling, myself, and Tristan Field-Jones in for Brett McGarry this afternoon on Mackling and McGarry. Thank you, Colin. We really appreciate you uh, doing this with us. My pleasure. We'll take a break, and as I mentioned, we will update the weather forecast. It's a little dicey in and around Winnipeg. We'll, we'll give you an update when we return. When you're inviting the world to a show with no actors and no script, you better make sure the special effects Blow them away. Manitoba, Canada's heart beats. I remember the first time I saw the video associated with that audio blew me away. I immediately wondered, where on earth is that? And then I quickly realized, my word, that is Churchill. Beautifully mm-hmm. cinematography, uh, or beautiful cinematography, beautifully shot. I'm Greg Mackling. He's Tristan Field-Jones in for a vacationing. Brett McGarry. And this is one of the jewels of Canada. It is one of the places for people to visit. And uh, the town of Churchill is in an absolute crisis. Apparently, it's not an emergency. That's uh, Yeah, it's a bit of a tough one to swallow when you think about it, considering that uh, 900 Uh, and probably more people than that when you look at the overall area, but 900-plus people cut off from this. And if you go to our website uh, at uh, cgob.com, you'll see uh, we have a story there with photos showing some of the damage to the rail line that connects Churchill. Um, And some of it, frankly, looks irreparable. It it is significant. And the flooding is very reminiscent of what we see in the Red River Valley during a really bad spring. I, I mean, it's... And now for us, we've got, you know, high, lots of highways and rail lines. So if we lose, even if we lose part of Highway 75, which is significant, we're still okay. But when you're Churchill and you lose that one vital ground transportation link, I, I could only imagine what those people are going through. And again, we still don't know what impact this will have on goods and services up there. I've insisted for a long time now that that rail line from Churchill to Thompson and vice versa be treated like the Manitoba highway system that vital, that important, that crucial. And maybe that means it has to be taken over by Crown Corporation one more time. But for a private company to own that stretch of track and to say, yeah, you know what? It's going to be months before we can fix it. In fact, I was reading in a free press article from today, it may never be fixed in terms of Omnitracks, and that's their position on it. Obviously, it cannot stay that way. We visited with Barry Prentice in the past about the idea of airships. That's years away yeah. to being a solution. Of course, air is really now, and, well, they've got the port there. Shipping goods, who knows, from Montreal, somewhere in Quebec, who knows, that might be something that becomes a reality long-term for those folks. But we did some math. Mm-hmm. And because it was concerning to me when Manitoba Emergency Measures comes on the air and says, and I'm going to play this clip because it's only 13 seconds, and they say this. This is Mike Gagne, Manitoba Emergency Measures. This is what he had to say to 680 CGOB and Global News today. Unless you gather information and do a fulsome assessment, it's really difficult to know what immediate actions you could take because these are complex issues. Looking at the amount of, of goods and materials and services that you need to sustain there isn't something that you can figure out over a weekend. No immediate action they can take to help out Churchill. If this is an emergency, why isn't there a plan? 
I thought the idea of an emergency measures organization, Tristan, and you know a lot about things like this, would be to play out scenarios, to imagine scenarios, things that you and I, the general public, might not even contemplate as a possibility. You have to imagine that the rail line getting wiped out between Thompson and Churchill it's happened before. Why would yeah. it be on a list of scenarios where they could just go to a book? Here's plan A, B, and C. Here's what we do depending on the severity. And uh, then we apply for this sort of funding, this emergency funding, and away we go. You're talking, like you said, 900 to 1,000 people mm-hmm. that are directly affected and more in the general area because Churchill is a hub for the northern part of Manitoba, southern part of the Northwest Territories. And, and you mentioned, Greg, the emergency preparedness. And as and for listeners who may not be aware, I do storm chasing. It's kind of a passion. It's a hobby of mine. But I took the storm chasing course at the University of Manitoba. And because you are obviously in a in what could be a highly dangerous and highly hazardous environment, at the when we were doing this the course, this was in 2009, I think, uh, we received a little bit of not so much emergency preparedness training, but we had to think like it because we were potentially dealing with a disaster. When you're out chasing, you approach the storm in this direction. You need to have at least three escape routes planned. You need to; Those need to be accessible. And if one of those gets cut off or another one gets cut off or whatever it is, what are your alternatives? And you have to constantly be thinking that in that environment of dealing with these summer storms. Now, obviously, this is a different disaster, but the same thinking should apply. Of course it should apply. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I just can't wrap my head around the idea of, you know, a 1,000 people being affected. If a 1,000 people in Winnipeg were somehow cut off, Bugs Bunny broke out his magic saw and cut off a neighborhood from Winnipeg, and disconnected it from everybody else, and the only way in or out was by helicopter or by airplane, what would that look like? What would the reaction of the federal and provincial government be at that point in time? So you and I took to the maps a little bit of a rudimentary example that we did, and then a little bit uh, grade five science, I suppose you could say, but we went to a map. We got our geometry sets out. That's and, right. Uh, we, what did we figure out first? We figured out how many people in Winnipeg per square kilometer. Yeah, and, and re- the numbers we found, it's uh, the de- the average density, uh, population density in Winnipeg is 1,400 people per square kilometer. So and that, I know, Greg, you looked at the map to figure out what that means. That's right. And so 1,400, that's average. In Osborne Village, it's about seven to eight times that. For sure. In certain parts of the city, it would be half of that. So you mentioned River Heights, nice grid system a part of the city that a lot of people could relate to. So we plotted out roughly a one kilometer square area, which would encompass roughly 1,000 people in that sort of neighborhood based on the type of structures. This area was from Academy Road to Corridon Avenue and from Brock to Route 90 or from Brock to Queenston. So basically half of River Heights between Academy and... And cordon. That's the number of people and businesses we're talking about being affected, cut off effectively from the rest of the province except for air travel. Mm-hmm. And yeah. if that was happening to that many people here in the city of Winnipeg, it would be an emergency beyond question. And, you, you know, you, when you think about our history with flooding too, uh, let's use, I think, a perfect example of this, Greg, is Kingston Row. Kingston Road was almost cut off from the city, and it would have been a very similar situation to that. Because when you think about that little strip of, of, of land, 
and I don't know how many people uh, live there in that particular area, but Kingston Row was pretty much cut off from the city. So that was a matter of getting the military in there, getting people out of there and not, oh, I don't want to go. No, no, it's you go. And we, and it was a matter of getting people moving and getting them out of there. We've dealt with similar situations like this in Winnipeg, maybe not quite as drastic and maybe quite not quite on the same scale, but ultimately have parts of Winnipeg been cut off due to flooding? Certainly. Throughout our history, absolutely. Jack says there are military transport planes that do touch and goes all day long at our airport. Why wouldn't those cargo planes be used to transport two or three times a week? Supplies to Churchill. You can tell me that rail is the only way. You can't tell me that rail is the only way to get supplies to Churchill. Having no plane is notably ridiculous but concerning at best. And Eve says in his mind, you know, think of Sage Creek being cut off from from the rest of the province and the only way to get in or out is by air. There would be an absolute outrage. There would be concern. And I'll tell you, there's another thing there that there would be. There would be definite action. Well, and what's interesting, Greg, is we asked the question on Facebook, what should be done with Churchill? What do we need to do with this community? And there are a fair number of people who are saying, like some people, Andy here on Facebook, saying government should offer some disaster relief in the form of subsidizing fuel costs to fly in, fu- uh, to fly in food. Uh, but there are a lot of other people uh, who look at some of the pictures we have there, and we have Jared here saying perhaps abandoning an unsustainable community is the best way to go. Uh, Jack here, another Jack here says, common sense says abandon this boondoggle. There's some people saying we should just abandon it and let it go. I don't know if that would be a wise strategy, frankly. I mean, it, it's, it is a big draw in tourism. We heard the numbers. It's a $1.5 billion industry. Uh, but having said that, what needs to be done here? And, and we had Colin in discussing, you know, you can still fly in from Thompson and the prices are approximately equivalent if you were looking at something like that. So. Yeah. It, Ken says uh, we were cut off for days, weeks in the Powell area, uh, north of Swan River bridges were washed out. The Manitoba EMO did a great job helping the public. Uh, somebody else here says let Churchill die. It's just a tax payers vacuum, sucking our tax money. Let it die. Let it die. And I wanted to read this other one before we break for news at the bottom of the hour from Global. And just as this idea, where is it that? You know, the uh, he, the 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 caller, the texter said, you know, this leftist agenda puts polar bears ahead of people. If this was polar bears that were stranded, we would be moving to make sure we, so, you know, supplied the polar bears with food and rescued them from an ice floe or what have you. Uh, but because it's people, they're number well, two. I, I don't necessarily agree with the leftist agenda comment, but there might be something to be said for, hey, maybe if this were animals up there who were trapped. Guess how many people would jump to the gun right there to, to help them? Global News and Weather is next. It's Greg and Tristan on this Tuesday afternoon. It's Greg Mackling and Tristan Field-Jones with you on this Tuesday afternoon. This Churchill topic is really heating up. We didn't know which way it would go. We didn't know how involved uh, listeners would be in this discussion. We should have known better, right, Tristan? But Rachel Monday is here from the Manitoba Marathon. She's politely agreed just to let us go through some of these text messages, Tristan, because some of them are strongly worded mm-hmm. on both sides of the equation, including from Tim. People are saying, let Churchill die. At least they have a tourist economy. The government should build a permanent road into Churchill, even if it cost a billion dollars. Then the city would flourish. Look at all the First Nations that have zero economy. Let them die, says Tim. 
Wow. Just wondering why no one is talking about the airship that was being developed at St. Andrews. We, in fact, mentioned it only about eight minutes ago. Barry Prentice was on this very program about 10 days ago, talking about the airship program and how it could be the answer to northern communities' issues in terms of transportation. Because not only is rail an issue, Tristan, but with climate change, the ice road season is shrinking dramatically. Mm -hmm. And so... First Nations and other communities that don't have road access 12 months of the year are going to be looking at alternatives to get goods and services into their communities. And, and another interesting text here from Faye, Greg, I was just reading this, says, can we stop pretending this isn't a race issue? How often are First Nations communities cut off from the rest of the world due to a giant pile of not caring from the government at all levels? Take a look at the state of Shoal Lake 40 over the last 20 years and tell me that race doesn't influence the level of emergency. I, I don't know necessarily if I agree with Faye's assessment, uh, but when it comes to a lot of First Nations communities, though, you do tend to see uh, uh, response that lags behind some uh, of the other cities. Indifference is the word that comes to mind. Yeah, indifference, exactly. Now, granted, Churchill isn't strictly a First Nations community, though, but there's certainly a lot of the First Nations people who live up there. Um, and again, I think it's just a matter of a lot of these remote communities, and it's an unfortunate thing, but a lot of these remote communities don't get the attention from governments at all levels because they're remote and there's only a handful of people there in the eyes of the big picture. It's not fair, it's not right, but unfortunately, I think that's the way it is, and figuring out how we appropriately address that needs to be done. Now, granted, I think when it comes to Churchill, this is more than just uh, a community struggling. This is an emergency and this is a crisis. And, and it's an emergency in a community that Manitoba has built mm -hmm. its tourism plan around. Yep. It has built marketing campaigns around Churchill and it is not cheap to get there. And if it was, more of us would have been there. Uh, the number that I heard this morning was around 2,600 people that go for beluga whale tours and for polar bear tours. Well, it doesn't sound like a lot of people, but when you do the math and you realize that they're spending five, six, seven, eight, nine thousand dollars per person to get there, the economic mm -hmm. impact is in the tens of millions of dollars. If it's 2,600 people at 10 million, it's $26 million. If we cut that in half, it's still $13 million. And that only has an opportunity to grow. Well, and for a community of 900, that's, that may not seem a lot if you're looking at it from a Winnipeg perspective, but for a community of 900, that's massive. Well, and of course, a lot of those people spend time in Winnipeg because they come here first, oh, either yep. to get on the train or to take the plane up to Thompson or up to Thompson and then up to Churchill. Please keep your text messages coming, your emails, gmac at cgob.com. What's your email address, it's, Tristan? Uh, my first name, Tristan, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, at cjob.com. You can email me there anytime. Uh, and for sure, later on in the show, uh, when we have time, Greg, I'm sure we'll take a look at some of these text messages because they keep coming in. And feel free to text us, text us, 780-6868 anytime. And if we have a few minutes, we'll we'll certainly read some more text. Yeah. And you know what? You mentioned uh, Shoal Lake. Uh, Faye mentioned Shoal yes, Lake. Yes. It's something that I've been hammering on for an awful long time. Another text message says here, this happened to Shoal Lake over 100 years ago. No one cared for decades, you're absolutely right, Texter, 204-780-6868. Uh, we should be learning from our past mistakes, rectifying we them. We should, yeah. And not use it, holding them up as a reason not to do anything, but as a reason, A, to fix what's going on in Shoal Lake and to have a plan. The fact that we don't have a plan for Churchill just bothers me probably as much as anything that we're not acknowledging that this is an emergency.
Yeah, and you know what, Greg, I could go on and on. I agree with you when it comes to the Shoal Lake. I mean, here we use this for clean water for Winnipeg, and we choose to cut them off, and we don't do anything about it. And in the grand scheme of things, if it costs $40, $50 million from a federal perspective, that's pennies. From a federal perspective, from a city perspective. Exactly. The city of Winnipeg puts millions of dollars into city coffers. They take a dividend from the water utility. They put it into general revenue. Absolutely. And you know what? These people, they should be partnered with the city of Winnipeg water utility. And the road and the bridge and everything that's required there should have been built decades ago. But we digress. (laughs) Why don't we transition from this conversation to our conversation with Rachel Monday by playing a report from Brett McGarry, the normal co-host on this program. From 2015, a group of students from Weston School took part in the Super Run at the Manitoba Marathon that year, and Brett McGarry was along for the ride with an outstanding group of youngsters. Here's his report from June of 2015. (laughs) You would think arriving to school at 5.15 a.m. on a Sunday would have these kids lacking in the energy department, but that isn't the case. About a dozen kids ranging from 8 to 12 and a handful of staff from Weston School at 1410 Logan are getting ready to hop on a beaver bus and make their way to the Manitoba Marathon, sporting their new sneakers that were donated to them by Skechers. And teacher Danielle Eppert says the kids love the shoes. You see them every day wearing their new shoes, and they were so excited to get them. Ms. S. is an EA at Weston, I asked her whether or not the kids are going to stick with an active lifestyle after the marathon. I think so. I think we definitely have a few children who already said that's what they want. I've counted 20 people with, uh, with everybody. Okay. Let's double check. While on the bus, I spoke with Gail Jacob, who is a school resource officer for the Winnipeg Police. Are these kids going to run faster than you today? Uh, they're going to try. Some trash talk. Before the race, everyone takes a preemptive bathroom break, and then this. The lines are horrible and it smells in there. It really stinks in there. And there's poop. One of the kids asked me if I knew if they get a medal or a trophy or anything like that after the race, so I asked them what they hoped they would get. I would want a trophy, a medal, and a remit all together, plus money. But I don't want to sound so greedy, so I'll just take them. I'll I'll take take the car. I'll I'll take take a billion dollars. A a billion dollars. I'll take a zillion dollars. No, I'll take a zillion. Off they go now for the Super Run, which is 2.6 miles or 4.184 kilometers. Their start time, 7.17 a.m. We head over to the finish line to wait, which is in the University Stadium, just west of Investors Group Field. And I speak with Rachel, whose son, Lucas, is in the race. And did he need the exercise at all? Not. No. No, he's a very active kid as it is, but it just it's 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 good for them with their energy and it's good for them, you know, with discipline and sticking to something that they put their mind and heart into. Brixton is the first of the Weston youngsters who I saw finish up. He was excited. How do you feel right now? Awesome. After the race, Danielle Shrum, who teaches grade two at Weston, says it's been a great experience for all the kids. The shoes were very exciting. And, uh, you know, running club at lunch, they like doing that. And all the assemblies and all the media attention, they definitely love that. (laughs) And indeed, the kids from Weston School had fun and want to come back next year and run even further. You're going to push for 10K next year? Yeah. No. No, I'm going to push for 20. 20? 30. 30? 100. 100. 10 zillion. Brett McGarry, 680 CJOB News. So even though he's off, 
We had uh, Brett McGarry on the show today. Thanks uh, for tuning in this afternoon. I'm Greg. He is Tristan Field-Jones, and Rachel Monday joins us now. She is the executive director of the Manitoba Marathon, which goes this Sunday. Rachel, you seem very calm, cool, and collected for someone that's about to host about 17,000 of her best friends. Well, it's all rolling down here from this point, so there's no <laughs> point in uh, getting you know too worried about anything that's going on. 39th annual. How close was I with that number? Very close. It's the 39th marathon this year. And oh. how about friends? How many friends are you going to have over on Sunday morning? Uh, we're expecting about 12,000 runners. Uh, we expect about 2,000 volunteers, both on the site and on the course. And we say on race weekend, we have upwards of 40 or 50,000 people on the University of Manitoba campus. So it's a big number. It's a big deal. And for the first time ever, tell us where folks will be crossing the finish line. We are so excited this year. We're moving into investors group fields. So uh, not just enhancing the runner participant, the runner experience, but the participant experience. Uh, we're also enhancing the spectator, spectator experience. So allowing people to finish on the field uh, when they come down that loading dock and turn onto the field and seeing themselves on the jumbotron, uh, having the family in the stands, seeing their family members on the jumbotron as they come in. Um, and then getting to have their recovery, having their post-race food and refreshments, sitting inside, cheering other people on, music, kids, families, elite athletes, everybody all in there together. It's going to be amazing. Rachel, I have to ask, since the Manitoba Marathon has been around for 39 years, essentially, how did this all get started? It's an interesting story. Back in 1979, uh, there was a fire at the Manitoba, Manitoba Development Centre, uh, which was a facility where people with intellectual disabilities lived, and um, and several people died. And so John Robertson, who at the time was a reporter with the Free Press, um, decided that, you know, that wasn't okay. And so he founded the Manitoba Marathon, actually. It was the beginning of the running boom. And uh, founded the marathon based on the principle that we are a charity. Um, the money that we raise goes back to people living in Manitoba with intellectual disabilities. And we support people who are moving out of institutional care into their own homes. So all of the money that we raise from our race goes back to, right to Manitobans. Can you give us an idea of how much money has been raised over four decades? We have given back over $6 million to the community over the uh, 39 years. But not only that, we've helped, uh, you know, um, some of the organizations we support exist because of the seed money that we gave all those decades ago to help them um, grow and thrive. So um, not just uh, an economic impact on the individuals we supported, but job creation as well. We've, you know, we have, we take a lot of pride in the work that we've done. Now, I imagine you've seen all sorts of weather over the years. We have to pause and update the weather forecast. Oh, we'll talk about that or not talk about it when we return. Rachel Monday is here. It is Father's Day on Sunday, not to remind anybody that they need to get a card and really nice gift for Hypothet their dad. Hypothetical. Hypothetical, Hypothetical, of course. Right, right, right. Because, you know, great dads deserve great gifts. And, they should, and, especially and if they're nice really cards. nice to their twin boys, right? Mm. The, the, the hypothetical dad we're talking That's about. That's right. Tristan, you Andrew. are really picking up what I'm throwing yeah. down this afternoon. If we can have four more days or three more days like this, you and I are going to get along just fine. <laughs> it's Greg Mackling and Tristan Field-Jones. Tristan's here, of course, for Brett McGarry. It's Mackling and McGarry. More conversation on the Manitoba Marathon. That's a lot of M's this afternoon here on 680 <laughs> CJOV. Rachel Monday is here. She is the executive director of the Manitoba Marathon. It takes place, of course, every Father's Day at the University of Manitoba, and then it spreads out like a, 
I don't know. Uh, if Brett was here, he could come up with some mm-hmm. sort of TV or movie monster. I, I think of of the Blob from the 1960s. Just uh, just people running frantically in all directions. Different race route. Last year, or is it this year, a uh, new race route? Uh, last year, we reversed the course. So it was essentially the same route, uh, run in the reverse direction. So instead of running up Pemina Highway, we ran across uh, Bishop Grand and Overpass, up River Road, and then back to the university again. Same thing nice this year, or did you miles. reverse it again? Uh, no, we're going to leave it the same. People really liked it. Um, nice and shady on both sides, actually. Mm. Um, really positive response, so we'll leave it the same. And yeah. that, that's what I, you mentioned, the shade. I have to ask... 39 years, uh, I'm sure you've had uh, tons of uh, extreme or at least crazy weather that has happened on some of those days. You mentioned like one of the first years uh, that uh, the marathon uh, was, uh, that the marathon took place, it was unbelievably hot. Right. And so in 1979, imagine the running boom was just starting. Um, John had this great idea to have the marathon to raise money. And it started at the old Bomber Stadium, actually, by, well, basically where we are now. Um, and actually ran out uh, to Headingley and back again, which you can imagine was a wonderful scenic route, you know, 39 years ago, not a drop of shade. Um, and it was smoking hot. And so there were a lot of people who struggled to finish. Um, people didn't really have any idea what a marathon meant at the time or what training was involved. It certainly hadn't evolved into what it is now. Good point. Um, you know, we have pictures of women running in their terry cloth shorts and tube tops, you know, that kind of thing that first year. And, uh, you know, they're pretty great pictures. Um, you know, so definitely we've had uh, some hot years. Um, and when you have years like that, you make a plan and you... You know, you you adapt and you, um, you know, make a plan for medical. You make a plan for getting runners to the finish line safely. You make a plan for, you know, showers on the course, sponges, ice, all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, we've had hot years. We've had some rain. Um, we averted some lightning last year, which was really exciting on race day. Uh, but really, we don't talk. We typically don't talk about the weather leading up to the race. So knock on wood. First rule of Fight Club, don't talk about Fight Club. First right. rule of Manitoba Marathon, don't talk about the weather. And Tristan, you just led Rachel right, right into that. So I think you're off the Christmas card list. We like well. we like rain leading up to the race because that means on race day it won't be raining. Just wring out that sponge and it'll be you empty, bet. right? So Rachel, how do we compare? We love to compare and contrast uh, how we do in Winnipeg versus other communities. How do we do here in terms of our big race of the year? I think we do a really good job. I travel around the country to a lot of races and throughout the United States. We're always looking to improve. We're always looking to get better. Um, It's definitely a competitive industry, so we have to adapt and we have to change. Um, People are looking for the experience. They're not just looking for the run on race morning. Um, Most people don't run um, for the charity, which is maybe surprising. Um, But they run because they want the experience. They want fans cheering them on. They want music on the course. They want... Um, the race weekend, they want the swag with the shirt and the medal. Um, you know, they want all that fun stuff. And so um, I think we have done a really good job of that. I think we're getting better at that, certainly. Um, we are one of the top 10 races in the country. And last year, we were the only race in the country to have increases in all of our participation and all of our distances. So I think the work we're doing is um, is being noticed, and certainly people around the country are starting to talk. So I wouldn't be surprised if our numbers go up. And, and I have to ask, when it comes to uh, the marathon, and you mentioned the different races there, uh, I believe a marathon is, a full marathon is 42 kilometers, if I'm not mistaken. 42.2. Okay, there we go. So 
But evidently, you guys offer different races because I, I, a lot of people might be listening to that and think, oh, I don't want to run that long. But For there sure. are different ones offered, aren't there? Yeah. So part of what we do and what makes us different than some of the other races is we have something for everyone. So, of course, the full marathon is kind of our crown. It's the crown jewel of our event weekend, um, 26.2 miles or 42 kilometers. Um, we have a half marathon. Uh, we have a five-man relay, which is actually a five-person team running the entire full marathon route. Um, great team event for families, you know, uh, co-workers, that kind of thing. Uh, we have a great 10K event, which actually is likely going to sell out today. We upped the number this year uh, by 350 people, and it will sell out. When I came on the air today, I think we had 20 spaces left. Oh, wow. Um, and then we also have the Super Run, the Great Westlife Super Run, which is actually 4.2 kilometers, a tenth of a full marathon. And that's typically a family event, um, beginner runners looking to run their first race, that kind of thing. So lots of opportunity for people to participate at any skill level. And I think just for context as t- for how long a marathon is, uh, just just to give you kind of a visual illustration for the audience, if you were to go from the perimeter and Portage Avenue all the way to the West Perimeter, I guess, and then the East Perimeter and Dougal Road, I believe that distance is about 37 kilometers. So effectively, that marathon is like running is more than running from one end of the city to the other. How how and why do you know that? I I, I just know things, Greg. <laughs> I looked it up one time and I thought I because I was genuinely curious. And, Ours is much more scenic. Oh, I, I'd hope it's so. It's a yes. lovely scenic tour of the city. Well, Rachel, we appreciate you taking some time on this very busy week, the busiest week of your year, I am sure. Uh, how can folks get involved if you haven't registered for one of the races? And of course, there are very limited spots, as you just mentioned, for for certain. Uh, races, but how can people get involved otherwise? So if people want to run, they can still register online until tomorrow at midnight at our website, manitobamarathon.mb.ca. Tristan, you should register. He uh, should. Uh, uh, okay. You could have a team. Oh, man. Uh, if they want to volunteer, if they're not doing anything on Sunday morning or if they want to try the experience of getting out there and volunteering and cheering people on, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, it's very rewarding to be out there and get be part of the party. Um, also, you can go to our website, same website, click on volunteer, uh, sign up to volunteer. Um, you can call the office. We're in the office until tomorrow. And then our expo certainly starts on uh, Friday and Saturday. So, oh, that's um, right, the expo. Yeah, the Global uh, News uh, Fit Expo runs Friday and Saturday. Uh, we're sold out. We have a brand new uh, giant space this year, lots of vendors, and it's open to the public as well. So if they just want to come and see what we're all about, it's a great opportunity to do that. Where is that, Rachel, before we let you go? It's at Investors Group Athletic Center on the, the University IGAC. of Manitoba. Yeah, IGAC. You bet. Love the IGAC. New track as well at Max Bell Fieldhouse. They just did all the renovations yeah, in yeah, there. Yeah. Outstanding stuff. We'll take a break. We'll uh, pause for global news. Tristan, you're going to slide over and uh, give mm-hmm. us news and weather at the top of the hour. And then we've got an going to come back and talk about automation in Canada. It's Greg and Tristan on this Tuesday afternoon. You like your job, Tristan? I do like my job, Greg. Uh, is this about the pay raise you were you promised me? Or <laughs> I have zero ability to offer you a pay raise, pay cut. I can't fire you or hire you. I just know it's mm-hmm. fantastic to have you aboard this <laughs> afternoon. I love the slight bit of hesitation there. <laughs> Just to try. As, as the wheel of, of choices spins in yep. Greg's mind, it's... Yeah, I landed on... Uh, it, it's great to have you here. Tristan and I sit beside one another in the newsroom, and so uh, we like to go back and forth on certain things. We have mm-hmm. intellectual conversations. Uh, well, at least we think they're intellectual. Outsiders may disagree. Uh, that uh, go into a variety of different 
uh, genres and, and we meander all over the place and we have some fun as well. So it's great to have Tristan here. Brett will be back on Monday. Brett's enjoying some well-deserved and well-earned time off. The reason I asked you if you liked your job, I want to know if you thought or think at some point it might be susceptible to something known as automation. Oh, and you know what, Greg? I certainly hope not because I would think it would be very difficult to uh, replace a radio personality. Uh, you know, it's, we, I mean, I know it, there's incredible advances in artificial intelligence, for instance, but I think it would be incredibly difficult to replace the job that we do. Now, having said that, though... <laughs> You've been taking, paying attention to the industry over the years, right? Yeah, a little bit. And also, not to mention, we're not the only ones faced with this. I mean, there are so many jobs. I mean, I look at our producer, Jeff Forche, who's on the other side of the glass there. And, I mean, I started off as a board op as well. And it's amazing how much of the processes there are automated. I mean, for certain hours overnight uh, at the station, it's fully automatic because of the technology we have. Well, if you speak to Brett McCary, his first job here at CJOB was to simply play music over the music that they play as an intro or extra to Coast to Coast AM. And because of CRTC regulations, CJOB was not allowed to air that music. It was licensing infringement and mm-hmm. it went against our license, et cetera, et cetera. So Brett McGarry's first job, his sole purpose was essentially to play that music over top of the music from a talk radio program that originates in the United States. So sort of good, sort of bad, a little bit of both on that front. But now, as you mentioned, things have changed over time. And so between the hours of about 11.45 and 4.30, there's nobody here. Right, exactly. Not to give away the secrets of radio, there's nobody here. Right. In the middle of the night. And so that is a change because 24-hour radio stations were reality in major markets for decades Absolutely. prior to that. So I, w- I would think long and hard about your answer as to whether or not we are susceptible to automation. That's a very long, drawn-out introduction right. to bring on the executive director of the Brookfield Institute. Sean Mullen joins us now. The Brookfield Institute put out this report about automation across the nation, what rapidly advancing technology means for Canadian regional economies. And Sean, thanks for sitting through that introduction and that back and forth, and we welcome you to the program. Thanks. Very pleased to be here. Sean, uh, let me ask you uh, the uh, the first question here before we get down to what the report uh, actually, uh, before the kind of the nitty gritty of the report. I think one of the most important things that people need to know when it comes to automation is that I guess the stereotypical image is a robot shows up to work one day and suddenly, oh, I don't have a desk and I don't have anything else and the robot's doing my job. But that isn't necessarily what automation means a lot of the time. Uh, I think that's right. Um, and one of the reasons we've been doing this work and um, is because of the increased prevalence and emergence of technologies that are not, you know, physical in nature at all, that, you know, we tend to use robots as a as an example. And certainly on manufacturing lines and other businesses, there are physical robots, but increasingly uh, sophisticated software techniques, artificial intelligence-based algorithms, um, are starting to replace many things through through um, computers or software that otherwise, um, um, you know, would have been done by humans uh, up to very recently. Sean, can you give us an example of some jobs that have been replaced via automation, overnight uh, operators at radio stations excluded? <laughs> 
Well, I, I think actually uh, listening to your intro, you guys actually nailed it quite well in that it's not necessary, and this is part of what our work looks at, it's not necessarily that jobs get replaced wholesale, although there are few examples in history, but it's rather that um, significant portions of an existing job tend to get eliminated. And then either that job gets changed significantly um, or or it gets reduced or, or merged with something else. So I'll, I'll give you examples. Um, you know, the accounting profession, for example, right now, um, what used to be very menial and labor intensive over the past 20 years of crunching a whole bunch of numbers, a lot of that now has been automated and increasingly there's, there's becoming sophisticated algorithms to, um, uh, to run people's taxes, to assess, you know, the quality of, of books. Um, are accountants getting completely uh, eliminated? There's still judgment. They're still working with clients. There's still pieces that accountants do, but significant portions of those jobs, for example, are starting to become automated. And so I think the example that you gave of what journalists used to do in radio stations and how, how many of those tasks have been automated um, is, is a good example as well of how these things are changing. Sean, you guys crunch the numbers in terms of how many jobs uh, and the equivalent uh, to that, uh, to, I guess, number of actual uh, physical employment, if you will. You guys crunched the numbers across Canada and even dissected it by cities. What did you guys find? Well, we did a, we did a study last year which kind of looked at Canada's labor market. And what we did is we drilled down into there's about 500 occupations. And that's the way that Statistics Canada, uh, when you hear things about like monthly job numbers, how they break down the economy. And so what we did is building upon some work that had been pioneered at the University of Oxford, we drilled down into each one of those 500 professions and kind of came up with an estimate of the likelihood of it being at risk risk of automation. And so when we added those all up across the country, the kind of headline number that we came up with was 42% of all Canadian jobs are at a high risk of uh, or high susceptibility to automation over the next 10 to 20 years. Um, and that was the time frame that we kind of looked forward. Now, Sean, I looked at the graph here and I looked at your information, and I was not surprised to see manufacturing at number two on your list at 61%. And that's even taking into account uh, maybe thinking outside the box in terms of what automation means. I was very surprised to see at number one, accommodation and food services at number one on your most, uh, I don't know if we're calling it a susceptible list, but a most affected list, I suppose, would be a better determination. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that that kind of, again, is a good example of it shows the pervasiveness uh, and perhaps the maybe not how obvious it is until you break it down. Um because that does seem a bit counterintuitive to me. But if you start to look at the job categories, so first of all, um, a lot of fast food restaurants are increasingly changing both the back end and the front end of their businesses. So if you kind of walk into a McDonald's these days, a lot of them have essentially created screens and touchscreen interfaces. You don't even have to talk to anybody while you order your food. Um, and then in the back office side, uh, there'll always be people back there, but there's increasingly... A more automation on the food preparation side. Uh, similarly, uh, accommodation. A good example that you may not think of as automation is the increasing prevalence of, say, an Airbnb. 
But if you think about what Airbnb is, mm-hmm. it's about people renting out their homes over the internet. Um, that means you don't need, uh, you know, a hotel desk clerk. You don't need, uh, you know, cleaners. You don't need maintenance people for the building. Um, it's all kind of done uh, electronically. So I'm cutting out the middleman, uh, I guess. Exactly. So if you take in a if you take an expansive view, and that's really what we mean. What we really mean is the ability of technology to disrupt jobs here. Um, that's why um, that's why that. Um, that number comes up at the top of the list. Sean, I was just reading an article about uh, legislation that may be introduced in Toronto to alleviate uh, the stress that Airbnb is in fact putting on the real estate market in Toronto. They estimate that the number of apartments and condos that are actually uh, pseudo hotel rooms in Toronto because they're essentially purchased to become Airbnb listings is about 3,200 so it's a startling number, and as I hear you talk about the idea of re- disruption, and we talk about that on this program a lot, about how the economy is changing, that's starting to make more and more sense to me in terms of the 69% uh, of jobs in the accommodation and food service world being affected by automation. Uh, you know what? I'm glad we're having this conversation because you're really putting a a, a, a real focus on this, and uh, we appreciate that. That is uh, that's statter- uh, it's startling numbers, but it might not be as scary as it needs to be. Indeed, indeed. And, and Sean, when you say, for instance, we talk about, uh, I think you mentioned overall 42% or 46% of jobs susceptible to, to automation. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, though, that 42% of jobs will vanish as a result of that, correct? That's right. And I think that's a really important point. Um, so first of all, we kind of we had to kind of pick an arbitrary time period. And so when this work was done, kind of, again, modeling after the Oxford work, um, the time frame of 10 to 20 years was kind of chosen because, um, you know, anything beyond that is, is pure speculation. But um, but we didn't want to kind of restrict ourselves to, to you know, the next two or three years. What that means, though, is um, there's a lot of – there's time for adjustment, Um this phenomenon will be impacting different industries at different rates. We fully expect uh, within that time period. Period, and also one thing, and we're, we're careful to point this out: technology has historically also, you know, created quite a number of jobs, um, and will continue to do so. And so, we're not necessarily saying that 42% of jobs will disappear. What we're saying is they're at high risk of being susceptible, modified, changed, disrupted. Um, over the over that period, and also at the same time, we we certainly think that the you know technology will create new jobs uh, over that period as well. The the tough part is to you know to actually predict is it going to create more jobs uh, than are lost over that period? Um, are the same people losing their jobs going to be qualified to take these new jobs? These are, I think, the tougher questions that we need to get our heads around. Sean, something I noticed as well, because another one of the uh, fact sheets you guys had in the report were the top 20 communities with the highest susceptibility to automation. Um, And I found it interesting that all these communities are less than 100,000 people. There are small cities and and, uh, that are a lot of them in southern Ontario, southern Quebec, some of them in Alberta. I found it interesting, though, Steinbach, Manitoba, right here, just outside of Winnipeg, uh, gets on the list. It's uh, it's in one of the areas that could see the most susceptibility to automation. Uh, what would what would place a town or a city like Steinbach on a list like this? Yeah. So uh, so when we kind of um, ran the numbers and kind of looked at the top twenty list, um, 
it was, as you said, it was um, none of these are major, major uh, cities. I think at, uh, you know, everyone's under 100,000. And what we've also found is that the um, the economies of these particular uh, areas um, are not are not as diverse, uh, and so they're more concentrated in a small number of industries. So, just kind of um, pulling up for Steinbeck, 16%, according to Statistics Canada, of the industry in that municipality is manufacturing, and that's quite a bit higher than the national average. Uh, manufacturing itself, as you know, is one of the highest um, 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 areas of the economy susceptible to automation. And so what you start to see is uh, smaller uh, cities, ones that are primarily in manufacturing or resource extraction industries, what you'll see in Alberta, um, that don't have a a huge diverse uh, uh, um, uh, economy, uh, means that, relatively speaking, a larger proportion of their workforce is, is susceptible to this phenomenon. Sean Mullen, Executive Director, Brookfield Institute. Where can folks uh, take a look at this report uh, if they'd like to do so on their own time, Sean? Sure. Uh, so we're on the web at uh, www.brookfieldinstitute.ca, and we're uh, we're housed within uh, Ryerson University. Outstanding to uh, make your acquaintance over the phone today, Sean. We appreciate your time very much. Uh, If it's okay with you, we'll reach out again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Sean Mullen, one more time, Executive Director, Brookfield Institute at uh, one of my favorite universities anywhere, Ryerson University in Toronto. Take a break and we'll look at the weather when we come back. It's Greg and Tristan. Greg Mackling and Tristan Field-Jones with you on this Tuesday afternoon. Thanks for tuning in wherever you are, however you may be tuning in. Maybe it's on the uh, cgop.com, listen live feature on good old-fashioned celestial radio at uh, AM680 or the radio player app. That's available on iTunes and Google Play. Pretty much anywhere, yeah. That's right. Greg, we got a ton of feedback when it came to uh, our conversation about Churchill earlier today. We asked, essentially, what should be done with Churchill. I had a lot of people on our Facebook page and texting us saying, we should. this is sucking up taxpayers' dollars, it's a boondoggle, we should just let the community die. And that hasn't been the reaction entirely. We got a couple texts here, Greg. Um, one person here saying, we had the thrill going to Churchill in 2010. We will never forget that trip on the tundra for two nights and the privilege to see polar bears and white foxes. We need to help Churchill. It is a jewel of Manitoba and of Canada. On our trip, Canadians were in the minority. There were Germans, Australians, and Americans. It doesn't matter. It's not a race issue. It's a matter of not caring about the North. It's not in our face, so it doesn't exist. If it was not for the floodway and the portage diversion, a large portion of Winnipeg and southern Manitoba would have been flooded how many times? Support Churchill. Look outside mm-hmm. the perimeter for a change. And another text message here. I was in Churchill for four months, 15 years ago. This track has been derailing all the time for a long time. How have they not had a backup plan or a crisis plan? We can fly to the moon, but we can't figure out how to build a track over Tundra. I got an email at gmac at cgob.com from Martha. She says, I totally agree with you on the Churchill story. I have just sent a message to the Premier of Manitoba basing, basically telling him that while I agree they should cut back and spend money wisely, Churchill is one place that they should be spending money. I used your argument about the line to Churchill should be treated as any provincial road in Manitoba with the example of Highway 75 being raised so that it would not need to close at every uh, every flood. 
in the immediate future, they should be helping to get food and essential supplies to the community. Thank you for that, Martha. Appreciate you uh, supporting uh, the folks in Churchill and sharing your email with us here. 680CJOB. And Greg, another texture here mentions to us, have we given up on our only northern port? And that's an idea that came to my mind, Greg. I wonder, I know we, they've had ports up there beforehand, and um, I believe it's referred to as Fort Nelson. If you give it a, a look, it was that was a good example of a boondoggle right there. The Canadian government spent millions upon millions of dollars this was over 100 years ago, building a port, and uh, essentially it was a bad location, and nowadays it lays in ruins because it hasn't been occupied for decades. Fascinating if you have a chance to look up the pictures, but I wonder if uh, Churchill, I mean, if it, they're in you know, economic, they're having these economic issues, I wonder if it would be a viable location for like a military naval base. Well, you know, you have to wonder, with what's happening around the world, mm-hmm. The saber rattling from Russia and China. China is going to be a player in the Arctic, yep. whether we realize it or not. Our presence in the north is extremely limited. Our response vehicles, vessels are spread very thinly, primarily on the east and the west coast. And, and so, and, what well. doesn't <laughs> Churchill does Churchill not lend itself to at least? cutting off several days of travel time if we wanted to deploy some sort of uh, Navy vessels, whether they be submarines, if we eventually get submarines, or some sort of naval force in a situation where we have to say, hey, back off Russia, back off China, this is Canada. Otherwise, these superpowers are just going to look at us like, you know, the baby brother that they can just brush aside and you just... Go over there, Canada. We'll We'll take whatever oil, whatever terrain. We'll stake out whatever we want. If we believe that that's part of our autonomy and that is part of Canada, uh, we probably need to do a better job of flexing our muscle. I'm not a huge, uh, you you know, huge person in terms of uh, being uh, on the leading edge of the military when it comes to protecting the North. I think we need to be there. And just for context, real quick, there was a time in Canada's history, and this is true, where there were more submarines in the West Edmonton Mall than there were in the Canadian Navy. That is 100% fact. (laughs) It's not the case any longer, but... Tristan Field-Jones, on that note, we'll pause for global news and weather at the bottom of the hour. And then more conversation. When we come back, we're going to meet a young author, a Winnipeg author. She is still in high school. We'll find out about her story and what drives her to write as we continue this afternoon on Mackling McGarry. It's 2.34 on this Tuesday afternoon. The clouds are starting to roll in. It's getting decidedly dark outside the radio station here at 680 CJOB. Well, you made that face at me. Am I, am I incorrect? It's kind of dark. It's uh, dark. Yeah. If that that gives you a great idea. Or if not, try this. Look out a window. There's a solution. What's the weather like outside? I don't know. Look out the window. Tristan, you're a little bit of a weather snob. And you should tell people (laughs) why you're a little bit of a weather snob. There are wine snobs. There are food snobs. Tristan is a weather snob. He doesn't get too worked up about weather warnings, uh, weather watches, forecasts that are ambiguous, and why is that for the uninitiated? Well, uh, yeah, for the uninitiated, I am a storm chaser. Uh, I took a course at the University of Manitoba several years ago. We did a week of storm chasing in the U.S. I've been doing it here in Manitoba for a few years, um, so I know a thing or two about especially severe convective uh, summer severe weather. Uh, so 
you know, I, I've seen quite a lot of powerful storms. I've seen some really impressive things. So that's why it takes a little bit more for me to get excited about if it's just cloudy and overcast outside. Eh. Now, what's unique about uh, the weather we might be experiencing over the next 24, 36 hours? You were mentioning in the newsroom that there's something unique and something that most of us may not have taken note of that go, hmm, that's kind of different. Well, the one thing you may have noticed is that the wind is coming from the east. So uh, it's usually in Winnipeg, especially on the on the surface, tip, typically your winds will come from the west, uh, sometimes from the north or from the south. But having easterly winds are rarer. And what's interesting is that these are also powerful easterly winds. So that's because of the com- the complexity of the system and the way the atmosphere works. There's a lot of you know te- technical mumbo-jumbo in there, but essentially it's an unusual system. And that's part of the reason why, you know, there's concern for severe thunderstorms, there's concern for heavy rain. Um, that's, your, your forecast is all over the place because some, some you might get 15 millimeters, you might get 50 millimeters, you got, might get more than that, but it all depends on how these storms form, where they form, when they form, how powerful they are. So um, and we're getting a few people texting us here saying, what time is the rain going to start? I don't know. Frankly, I don't know. I w- maybe late this evening, but again, we'll have our weather forecast and we'll have our, our global news weather specialist, Mike Conkin. He'll give us all those details as well. You don't have a rusty knee or something that tells you when it's going to rain and that the humidity or the barometric pressure is changing, nothing like that? No, no. Okay. Okay. I hope it doesn't rain. Here's a text at 780-6868. I hope it doesn't rain until I get home. I had to ride my bike to work as my daughter has my car. That would never happen in my house. <laughs> Ride the bike, kids. I'm driving the car. Yeah, but you're going for. I don't. I don't, I don't care. care. I pay the bills in the house. <laughs> or there's always a bus. There's always, <laughs> there's always the bus. Always the bus. Or you can just complain all the time, but I don't care. <laughs> Thea Wortley joins us now. She's a young author. She's launching her own book, Max Last Name. That comes up Friday night. It's happening at uh, at uh, Grant Park, and that has to be at our friends at McNally Robinson. Thea, thanks for taking some time and joining us in the studio. Do you know a little bit more about weather than you ever wanted to know after that little back and forth? <laughs> I think I do. <laughs> So, Thea, congratulations on publishing a book. Can you please tell me how this comes about? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about how old you are and where you go to school. Yeah, um, well, I'm 16, and my high school is technically Collegian Sauvé, but for this semester, I'm at Nelson McIntyre Collegiate because that's where the Propel program is, and that is a project-based learning program where I've been a student for the last semester. And in this program, I've chosen to write a novel, which is Max's last name. And so, yeah, I, I've done that for the whole semester, and now it's done. Student-initiated projects saved my bacon my last year of high school. Otherwise, I would have had to do the four-year plan or at least an extra semester. Uh, but I did not write a novel. So, Thea, tell me why you decided to write a novel. Um, well, I really like writing, and I wanted to push myself and and do it more and in a more creative way. And I also wanted to improve my writing skills, and I figured Propel would be a really good place to do that. I, I just I, I love how Theo, you mentioned, uh, you know, oh, I just I just decided to write a novel. <laughs> I mean, that that is something to me. You know, if I try doing a, a project like that, and I mean, novels are hundreds of pages long. I would just think, uh, where do I start? So I have to ask you the question, where did you start? Um, well, I started with Max, the main character, and I got the inspiration for him from a novel we were reading in French class. 
And this novel had a character who was fairly young, and he was the narrator for some parts of it. And I really liked how naive he was and how he often told the reader things that weren't totally true. But as a reader, you had to be smarter than him and you had to know that he was wrong. And so I wanted to try out that kind of a point of view, like from a, a child's point of view and make it more interesting and yeah, have that young point of view that we can't necessarily trust. So what kind of story are you trying to tell us about Max and and does he take you on some adventures or take us on adventures? Why don't you give us a little bit in, of insight? I know you want to sell some of these books, so we won't ask you to give away all the secrets, but maybe, you know, a little tidbit that might have us uh, wanting to know more. Yeah, well, the the book is about Max and his dad, and it follows them for around a year to five different cities. And every time they move to a new city, they both get new names and Max gets a new hobby and dad gets a new job. And Max thinks that this is part of the game, which is something that his dad invented for the two of them to just have fun together. But really, this is something that's dad invented as a device to keep Max distance from his own criminal wrongdoings as a con artist. Aha. Uh-huh. That sounds like the that would I think that could be the premise of a really interesting kind of. Uh, thriller heist movie almost, you know, something along those lines. Like you can almost see Harrison Ford in there as the father and then maybe, oh, name a hot young actor nowadays. Tristan Field Jones? No, the, definitely uh, not. As, as Max. I work in radio for a reason, that's why. But it's it's <laughs> just... I, yourself, I, man. I, I, <laughs> uh, but But I could... I, it, this feels like the plot to to a, a movie like that. Did you... Were there other influences? You mentioned a story in French class. Were there other influences that played into this? Um... Not a lot. Like, I, I like the con artist kind of character because they're really interesting and they they let you forget that they're the bad guy, kind of. Like, they convince you to support them. And so I wanted to kind of explore that more, too, with the, with the dad. Yeah. I, I think that's fascinating. You bring out an excellent point. I've always been blown away by how in movies and in books you can become so sympathetic to the lead character who is most obviously and clearly the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Why do we fall for the bad guy? Is it just because we're learning more about their story? You must, I mean, I know you don't necessarily have any research to back this up, but in your opinion, Thea, why do we feel the sympathy for who really is essentially the bad guy? I think it's because they're, they're portrayed as very charismatic and very clever, and mm. so we start to really admire the way they think and how, how smart they are and how they've figured out all these things to, to pull off a con or, or a heist. And yeah, we really admire their, their creativity and their intelligence. We have to pause. We will update the weather forecast. We spoke a little bit about the weather off the top of this segment. Uh, we do have potential for, for some violent weather later on this evening. We will update that forecast for you. And then we come back more conversation with Thea Wortley. Her book, her book is being launched at McNally Robinson Friday night at 7 o'clock. That's here in Winnipeg at uh, Grant Park Mall. The name of the book is Max Last Name. And she just told you a little bit of a secret as to why the name of the book is that. We'll learn a little bit more about Thea, her reading habits, and we'll, we'll find out what books inspired her and maybe some advice and ideas on how you can encourage your kids to read more or, in my case, how I can encourage Tristan to read more when we come back. I do a lot of reading. It's Greg and Tristan. Tristan's here for Brett. Hope you're having a great day. 
If you'd like to meet a young author face-to-face and support her work, go to McNally Robinson this Friday night, 7 o'clock. That's at Grant Park Mall. Do they call it Grant Park Mall, Grant Park Centre? What do they call it? Uh, I thought it was Grant Park Shopping Centre, but yeah, yeah, okay. I wouldn't know. Well, either way, McNally Robinson are good friends there. And you can meet Athea Wortley. She is a student at Collège Jean Sauvé, but right now she's at Nelson McIntyre. And she's written a book, yeah, just for a project. Oh, I'm going to write yeah. a write a novel. She's here to tell us about Mac's last name and a little bit of her inspiration. And I was asking before we came on the air, which books you've read uh, most and what kind of books you like. And you were telling me you really enjoyed The Hunger Games. I did, yeah. I was obsessed with it for a while when I was younger. What was it about that, that series of books that you really liked? I don't know. Like... Yeah, I'm I'm not really sure. For a long time, I was like, I'm not going to read that because everyone was reading them. And I'm like, I w- I'm not going to be one of those people. I'm not going to jump on this train. I'm not going to read it. And then I read it, and I read it three times, and I was totally obsessed. And I think I just really liked the characters and the story. Yeah. I was kind of like that in uh, in uh, elementary school and, and high school, too, a little bit, where people, especially elementary school, people were absolutely obsessed with Harry Potter I was like, ah, I'm not going to read it, and I ended up reading the first first book, and I thought, well, oh, that was okay, and the movies were pretty good, too. Um, I, I have to ask you, Thea, what, uh, uh, talking about kind of the books that influenced you, and we mentioned that uh, there was one particular book in French class, I have to ask, were there any kind of real-life incidents or real-life examples, like any, maybe something from your personal life that may have that you may have used to help write this book? Is your dad a, a secret criminal? He's sitting near us. That's not what I'm implying yeah. at all. But Well, I will ask the questions. <laughs> I'll ask the hard questions here, Tristan. I'm not sure I could tell you if he was. Um, but no, he's he's not. That'd be pretty cool, though. Um, <laughs> Wait a minute. That's uh, an honest answer. We like honest answers. Um, the best example I can think of is that, um, well, Max has a list in this book, a list of things he wants to do when he grows up, and this is called his hit list. And so in that, I drew uh, something right from my personal life, and that is that he put on his list that he wanted to do taxidermy. And he thought this was because he was great at math and he would be great at it. (laughs) And eventually he realizes that, no, he wants to... Do tax uh, be a tax attorney, and so this was a mistake that that I made once. So I thought it'd be cute if this ten-year-old Max made the same mistake. That is absolutely adorable. You mentioned the Hunger Games. Suzanne Collins, of course, is the author. J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter. So the prevalence and the magic of female authors is has been unleashed in the last couple of decades. Do you, do you do you understand or or see? Any responsibility in terms of being a female author? Have Has the success of those series of books inspired you in any way, or is it a non-issue for you? Um, I don't know. It's not something that I've really considered, but I do think it's pretty cool, especially thinking like people like S.E. Hinton, the author of The Outsiders, didn't even want people to know she was a woman because, or she was a girl because she wanted to be able to sell this book. And so it's cool now that J.K. Rowling and Suzanne Collins, like you said, are so successful. And, and yeah, they are a woman, and that's that's neat. Well, and jo- J.K. Rowling uh, did exactly the same thing, right? Uh, hid, to a certain extent, uh, what her gender was based on using her first two uh, initials. So, you know, as she thought, you know, jo- Joanne or Joanna Rowling would not exactly typically sell. I'm curious as to why you as a girl then would choose Max or a boy as the protagonist. Yeah, um, I'm not really sure. Like, 
I've written like a few short stories and that kind of thing in the past. I, I like I write fairly frequently and I hardly ever choose a female point of view. I don't know why that is. Like I I've thought of that before and I really don't understand it. But with Max, I think I wanted him to have the bond with his father and I thought that'd be easier to show if if he was a boy and and yeah, I thought also um girls at that age are a little more mature sometimes and I thought for exactly what I wanted, Max needed to be a boy and at that age and then he could kind of do the goofy things that he does and, and be the way that I wanted him to be and the way I envisioned him. Tristan, that is solid character development. Uh, certainly it is. Yeah, there, there's there's thought behind this. I mean, uh, it, this reminds me certainly that the premise and the foundation, if you will, of, of this universe that you've built uh, certainly reminds me of kind of the foundation of a lot of those other more successful series. I mean, you look at, I mean, Harry Potter is a perfect example of that. Why is that so popular? Well, it's the universe that they created surrounding that, right? And the characters and putting everything in there. And I feel as if you've you've created something, you know, at least the foundation for a start of something like that is present in here. I have to ask, if this ends up being successful, if, if you end up having... Uh, you know, if this goes even further than you expected, would you consider a career as a full-time writer? Um, I might. I was hoping that by the end of the semester I would know either, like, yes, that's what I want to do, or, or no, that's not so much for me. But uh, I still have no idea. I think that'd be pretty cool, yeah, to try that. I, I think I would definitely look into that, especially if this went well. Yeah. I'm always mar- I always marvel at the options kids have these days. Mm-hmm. You know, to do something like this and 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 the project and the um, umbrella program. What did you call it? It's Propel. Propel. Yeah. I was going to say Prospect. I didn't write it down. So uh, uh, Propel and these uh, different ways of learning. Uh, I heard from my sister-in-law the other day that there are schools in the St. James School Division that don't go inside unless it's pouring rain for the entire month of June. That's part of their curriculum that's part yeah. of how they learn and how they're they're working it's just a, such a wide variety uh, of learning opportunities are there some other ones that you might be able to take ad- advantage of uh, before you graduate um i don't know like like propel has been really great and i really love that experience um i can't i can't think of anything else so uh, you're going to graduate you'll graduate next year next year yeah next year so does is propel are you eligible to do that program again or is it kind of a one semester thing um i could have applied to go back next year but i decided not to just because i need to go back to my home school and and do the classes that i want want to take and that i need to take that you know greg i i feel almost as if some of my accomplishments like you just speak casually about writing a novel and I feel as if that kind of my accomplishments are, what do I do? I talk, I talk to people for, for a living. No, you, you know, know, you know, it, it, it's humbling to meet someone yeah. like you. So driven, driven Thea and the opportunity to visit with you has uh, been a genuine gift. So one more time, if you'd like to meet Thea and get her book, Max last name, you have the backstory now. I'm intrigued. I think my Certainly. boys would absolutely love this book. Who are you aiming it at? We didn't ask you this. It's a young adult novel. Perfect. So, you know, because kids read above their their age all the time. So 12, 13, 14. Yeah, about there. Be okay. Max last name. It launches Friday at McNally Robinson. That's at Grand Park. Not in the arena, not at the school, at the shopping center, the right. mall, whatever they call it now. Uh, 7 o'clock Friday night, and uh, Thea Wortley will be there. Thea, so awesome to meet you. Congratulations on this, Thank and you. please keep in touch with us, okay? We'd like, to, we'd like to know how things are going. 
Well, thank you for having me. We'll take a pause and we come back. Uh, we will uh, set up hour three of Mackling and McGarry without McGarry. Tristan Field Jones is here for Brett. Hope you're having a fantastic day. Do you, sir? Let me know. Are you going to take that bitch? We're going to get it. But guess what, though? One day, one day, this door is going to open because these 10 guys here, all of us, Christy, Finn, Dennis, Charles. Who in the heck is that, Jeffrey Forche? Can that- I guess? Oh, you take a guess. Um, uh, Cookie Monster. That's not Brett McGarry right now, That's right? That's not Brett McGarry right now. Could be Brett McGarry right now. That's <laughs> Dennis Rodman from an interview. Where's that interview from, Forche? Put those put those headphones on. Get involved in the conversation here. Um, I'm actually not quite sure. Well, it's it's from CNN. Um, it's from years ago, and oh, it's from Ping, Pyongyang, North Korea. So he was in North Korea. How, how did you f- dig up this little piece of audio, Jeff? Oh, I just remember this. I saw on your page uh, talking Des- Dennis Rodman, and uh, <laughs> I just remember this interview, and I had no idea what he was saying. So uh, maybe he was speaking Korean, or is there a different, separate dialect of Korean? North Korean. Dennis Rodman is back to uh, visit. Oh boy, he considers his old pal. And Tristan, you're a little worked up about this. This really bothers well, you. It, it, it is, and, and this is one of those uh, uh, fascinating kind of uh, do the ends justify the means stories because we hear about Dennis Rodman who visits North Korea. He called uh, Kim Jong-un, the dictator there. He referred to him as an awesome guy. He had several complimentary things to say. For those of you who aren't aware, in North Korea, it's estimated that there are close to 200,000 people in prisons because they don't agree with the regime. And it's also estimated that in the prison population, up to half of them die because of disease, malnutrition, that sort of thing. This is based on information from people who were defectors from North Korea. Uh, Human rights panels have done tons of interviews and tons of research on what they can find. It's a brutal, oppressive regime. And according to even one human rights panel that was formed by the United Nations, and this was backed up by another one that was uh, in Washington, D.C., they compared the prison camps and the re-education camps to those of Nazi Germany in North Korea. Well, you mentioned Washington. How about the Washington Post? Wondering out loud, is it Donald Trump that has sent Dennis Rodman to North Korea uh, it's wondered aloud, it's been rumored, it's been suggested that Washington, the White House, wants to set up a back channel to North Korea. And, of course, Dennis Rodman was a participant on the Celebrity appre- uh, uh, Apprentice once upon a time. Mm-hmm. And Trump has, in fact, called Kim, quote-unquote, a smart cookie at least once. Said he'd be honored to meet him as well. Uh, so, is there a chance Dennis Rodman is on a not-so-secret mission from God or, in this case, Donald Trump. Well, and, and here's where do the ends justify the means comes in. If Dennis Rodman, because he's a friend of the dictator, if he can secure the release of some of these American prisoners, and I believe there's four of them that are being held there, you know, we know that Rodman is a friend of the dictator and he gets along with him well and has said many complimentary things about him. Again, it would take, uh, there's nothing that you can say to me that would convince me that this man is decent by any standard, by any human standards. But having said that, if someone like Dennis Rodman can get these hostages, arguably these hostages released, do the ends justify the means? 
Is this something we need to hear some we need to hear somebody else uh, uh, praise a dictator and and someone who's in charge of horrific programs? But on the flip side, if it means innocent people are freed, where do you draw the line? Somewhere along the line, America befriended Saddam Hussein. Yep. In Iraq's war with Iran. I believe they funded him as well. Oh, quite nicely they did. In fact, was it not the Mujahideen who fought in Afghanistan? Wasn't Osama bin Laden part of that regime that fought the Russians once upon a time, the Soviets at the time in 1980? So you know what? America's good at making friends with who they need to Mm -hmm. make friends with. Uh, It would be fascinating to tag along with Dennis Rodman to find out what this... Kim Jong-un is like outside the public realm, behind closed drawers. Of course, I reference, well, haven't you seen the interview? No. That, that's, the, <laughs> now, that's the real Kim Jong-un, right? Well, and, and, it's, it's, and this is noted throughout, uh, this is noted throughout history that a lot of these horrific dictators, these people who under their regimes, millions have died. And Adolf Hitler is a classic example of this. If you read the accounts of state leaders visiting him, including Canada's prime minister at the time, people were impressed with his charisma and his warm personality, in spite of the fact that this is obviously one of the most horrific madmen in our entire history on this planet. When international leaders sat down with him and met him, they were surprised at how friendly and warm and open he was. And that's how these dictators and and these, these people end up being so so vile is because they're charismatic and and they can be con men essentially well i believe neville chamberlain was taken aback and enamored with adolf hitler the first time or maybe the only time that they met so uh that is one of the things that we forget about dictators they are charismatic they Mm -hmm. resonate their message resonates with certain people and if you don't like the message we're going to make darn sure it does resonate with you right exactly or else you get sent to a re-education camp 3.13 3.13 on this Tuesday afternoon. What will happen with Dennis Rodman? Will Dennis Rodman be the key to peace between America and North Korea? I wouldn't put any money on it, but at the same time, Tristan, I may not put any money against it. Stranger it, it, things have happened Stranger in the last things decade. have happened, uh, and I mean, there's a lot of people who said Donald Trump would never get elected, and now he's the president of the United States. There's a lot of people who said Brexit wouldn't happen, and yet, look at that, the, the United Kingdom is... And, and on the flip side from that, a lot of people said Theresa May would maintain her majority in Britain, and look what happened there. So could Dennis Rodman uh, uh, bring in peace to the Korean Peninsula? You would probably laugh at that, but part of me thinks it's entirely possible. 314 now we'll take a pause we'll update traffic and uh, weather as we uh, make our way through the afternoon he's Tristan I'm Greg hope you are uh, having a little bit of fun with us I'm such a sucker are you a fan of this song Greg One of those. I'm a closet Nickelback fan. I, I like. Yes, their lyrics are predictable. Yes, their licks are predictable. Everything about them is fairly predictable. But you know what? I'm hooked. We've covered this time and time again on we the air. We talked about it yesterday. I, I know, but it's just uh, I, my perspective on them is I've never understood why they're so hated. It, they've become such a punchline. I'm not a fan of them personally. I don't. I, some of their songs I like, but it's just, I, 
like what is there to hate about like you, a band like Limp Biscuit? You can hate a band like Limp Biscuit, right? But that, that's a love or hate thing, exactly. But right. why? What is there about Nickelback that's worth hating? I, I don't understand it. I think they're too, frankly, boring. But not that they're bad by any means. I just think they're too boring to hate. Are you done? Oh, sorry. Yes, we got things to do, right? No, no, it's okay. I think <laughs> it was an eloquent rant. Spot on. Yeah. Spot on. Okay, Jeff Forche, we entrusted Jeff with the challenge of coming up with today's trivia question. 204-780-6868. Don't call quite yet because the lines are busy if you dial now. I will unblock them as soon as Jeff asks the question. And from yesterday, by the way, I apologize. We didn't let people know that the answer to our trivia question was Lanny McDonald. The question was Nickelback hails from Hannah, Alberta. Name the National Hockey League Hall of Famer who also hails from Hannah, Ooh, Alberta. Tough question. Former Toronto Maple Leaf, Colorado Rocky, and of course Stanley Cup champion with the Calgary Flames. Lanny McDonald is the answer. And for Winnipeg Jets 1.0 aficionados, Jim Nill, the now general manager of the Dallas Stars, also from Hannah, Alberta. So I apologize we didn't throw that out there yesterday. Jeff, what's today's question? Today's question is, before the band was called Nickelback, what was their name? Lines are open now, 204-780-6868. If you want to go and see Nickelback, we have tickets for you. Greg Mackling, Tristan Field-Jones. Tristan is here. (laughs) We have have for for Brett McGarry. We have one of our listeners here saying, please stop playing Nickelback. Oh, there you go. You're welcome. Here we go. I can I can uh, comply with a request or two. Uh, it's you know it's we have Ryan here saying don't know still hate him. He called yeah. Uh, Ryan, if you want to text us, please explain to us why you hate them because I don't see enough in them to hate. Frankly, I mean, music is such a subjective topic, right? So there are so many different ways to approach this. But Ryan, I see you're texting us. Why don't you tell us why you hate them? What is it about them that you don't like? Because I'd love, I'd love to know, because I've never understood the hate. It, it, it was uh, Bob Irving yesterday. He said it's a, such a Canadian thing, you know, to 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 dislike Nickelback and not have a reason for it. Yeah. Or maybe not be able to quantify the reason. It's just maybe just one of those things. Well, there, there's a lot of bands out there. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big Rush fan, for instance, and I know there's a fair number of people. <laughs> well, there, you could not have picked a better example right. of a band that people love to hate. Even though they are outstanding musicians, a lot of people have a thing against Getty Lee. A lot of people have a thing against Chad Kruger. A lot of people have a thing against the music of Rush. It's too complicated for a lot of people. Nickelback, it's too simple. Well, and you know what it is about, and and I think Rush, now granted, the the hate for Rush, if you will, is far less than the hate for Nickelback, Uh, and uh, and a lot of people I've spoken to said they're just not, they can't stand Geddy Lee's voice, but they love Neil Peart, he's the guy with the 140-piece drum kit. Uh, amazing. It's not 140 pieces. I think, I'm pretty sure it's 140 pieces. Then you're counting each and every single one of those uh, xylophone type uh, uh, chimes. Again, I could be wrong on that, but it seems to me it's it's over, it's at least over 100 pieces. Okay, you keep talking because if only there was a device that we could use to find out (laughs) how many, yeah, instantly find out how many pieces Neil Peart has in his uh, drum kit. You keep talking. 
Uh, anyway, so there's uh, there is some hate, but I can at least understand. I'm not a fan of Getty Lee's voice. That's why I can't listen to Ru- Rush. And sometimes that's really important to people. And I have to admit, when it came to Getty Lee, it took me a little while to get used to his voice. But I, I love as a musician myself. I love the instrumentation. I love what goes into it. Uh, we're getting a few texts here, Greg. Uh, Ryan <laughs> says he's a big fan of metal. Rock anthems generally drive me crazy. And to be fair, Nickelback are kings. Of, of rock anthems. Uh, Ryan texting us, though, saying Rush is awesome, though, and I do agree with that. We can't find. You can't find? We'll have to Google's look that up. Google's letting me down. We'll look, a, look it up over uh, global uh, news and weather. And also, Clay Young, I believe, is standing by. Mm-hmm. He's got uh, our first afternoon sports, but before that, we've got traffic. Or do we just have weather? We just have weather here. Coming up, uh, if you have any tra- traffic tips, send them to us, 780-6868. It's Greg and Tristan. Back in April, you may recall, we visited with our friend Holly Bosman, our former colleague here at Chorus Radio Winnipeg. She had a little bit of an incident. She got a ticket she didn't think she deserved. Well, there was resolution today. In early April of this year, we visited with our former Chorus colleague, Holly Bosman. This was from a Facebook post. Uh, Holly was quite upset that she had been given a ticket by Winnipeg's finest in spite of the fact she was being a solid citizen. By getting out of the way of emergency vehicles, Holly Bosman joins us now to give us an update on the situation. And Holly, maybe you could reset the situation for us and take us back to April 3rd and where you were and exactly what happened, if you don't mind. I was on my way home from work. Uh, I work on Pembina Highway. I live in Old St. Vitale, so easiest way, come down Jubilee, over Dunkirk, turn on to Furmore. And there's always a traffic line up there on Furmore, which I'm used to, and I always wait. I heard an ambulance coming. And there's a street there called Killarney, and you cannot make a right turn on Killarney between 3.30 and 5.30. And why why can't you make a right-hand turn there, Holly? Uh, Well, it's into a residential area. The residents complain because people use it as a shortcut, and I get it, right? they got their kids coming home from school. They don't want a bunch of impatient drivers ripping through there on their way home, and uh, so they have a no-right turn on Killarney during rush hour. I respect laws. (laughs) It's usually how I am. But I heard an ambulance coming. I heard it coming. It was on um, Osborne, coming on to Dunkirk, and I saw it start to turn onto Fermore. I was just past Killarney, so there was nobody behind me. People in the left-hand lane were trying to get into the right-hand lane. There's no shoulders in that area. So I thought I was doing the right thing. I backed up. I backed up eight feet, and I made a right onto Killarney, even though it said I can't during rush hour. And there was a police officer there because the residents have been complaining about people using it as a shortcut, and he thought it was justified to give me a ticket. So you had a conversation. You explained, if I recall correctly, you explained to the officer what you had done and why you and he had met. I did. I tried to explain it. I got the head roll and eye roll, and he didn't want to hear it. And so I said, fine, give me the ticket. He then gave me a ticket with an adjusted amount of $140 instead of 200 and change. And as soon as I mentioned that I was going to fight it, he snatched the ticket back from me and changed the amount of the fine. Did uh, I have to ask, Holly, did he increase that amount or decrease it? He increased it from 140 to $200. How annoyed were you when you received that ticket? I was pretty upset. My grandpa was a firefighter. My uncle was a firefighter. My brother was a firefighter. And in my family, you do whatever means possible safely to get out of the way of an emergency vehicle. So, and so I was doing that. If I had been driving a truck and not a car, I would have said, screw backing up, and I would have just pulled up onto the boulevard. <laughs> but I couldn't do that. 
And for those that don't know Holly, she would have done exactly that. She would have done whatever was required to do uh, what was necessary to get out of the way of this emergency vehicle. Anyway, we now know you set the scene. We know where you're at. Obviously, we brought you on the air, Brett McGarry and myself. We had a conversation. We had a plethora of phone calls and interaction on text message and emails on the topic. You said emphatically you would fight that ticket. Well, today was your day in court. Well, today was just the preliminary day. I went to go in and, and enter my plea of guilty or not guilty. And I went down and pled not guilty. They sent me up to the fourth floor. I was able to appear in front of a Crown attorney. And I told the Crown attorney my side of the story. And she threw the ticket out. Vindicated, Holly? I, yes, I feel phenomenal. I'm so glad that I don't have to pay this ticket. Like, And I've never been down that street. Like, I have no reason to be down that street. The only reason I was there was to avoid an ambulance and get out of the way and I'm I'm pumped. I'm pumped I don't have to pay $203 right now. What's your message to the masses in terms of fighting a ticket that you feel is unreasonable? Do it. Even though it cost me a day off work, it's still better than, I'm still ahead. Like, I may have lost one day's wages, but the ticket was still more than one day's wages. And uh, if they're going to write false tickets for really dumb reasons, make sure that they they're just desserts, you know. Let's take up the court time then. Let's make sure that we are to have our butts in the seats in the in the fourth floor and on the main floor at three seventy three Broadway, and let's not take these bogus tickets. Holly, I have to ask: when you told the story to friends and family, what was their reaction? Livid, especially when it, it came to family. You know, like they they're like, "Well, we raised you to do that," and I'm like, "I know you did," and they're like, "Well, you better fight it," and I'm like, "Of course I am." So they were they were just as upset as I was. And, of course, they wish you the best and, and all that throughout the proceedings. And I was very lucky. I was very lucky. I had a Crown attorney that believed my story, and, uh, and she dismissed the ticket. I have to ask, how frustrating is it to know that you lost wages today, but the officer who had to appear today uh, was probably getting paid overtime to be there? It, it, that fries my butt. Because he wasn't there for my ticket. He had no idea I was going to show up today. Today was just my last day that I could deal with it, and it was the day that my boss could give me a day off work and find somebody to cover my shift. So this was the day that I went in. He didn't know that I was going to be there today. I didn't know he was going to be there today, but I ran into him in the elevator. And in the elevator, he's trying to tell me how to fight it because he recognized me. First he gives you the ticket, then he tells you how to fight it. That, That doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't make sense. So this gentleman apparently really enjoyed being in court. So even though today he wasn't there to battle your ticket or to stand up and to justify what he had done in your case, he was there to do the same for someone else, presumably. And had you had to find yourself in court, an official court date, he would have, of course, you would have had to take another day off of work. Mm -hmm. And in that scenario... He would have had another $600 in overtime pay. Yeah, it, it's that's that's very frustrating. I, I wish there was another mechanism for those uh, that have to take time off work to stand up for justice and to stand up for themselves. Uh, even when you are innocent, there is a serious consideration that has to be deliberated upon as to whether or not you're going to take the time to fight up, fight and stand up for yourself. Exactly, especially when it depends on the variation of, of the amount of a ticket, right? If the ticket was less than $100, what would I have done? You would have would just I have paid it. Would I actually taken the time and taken the day off, or would I have just paid it? Well, your That's princi- a good question. I don't know at this particular time, but yeah. 
And this is another chunk into my budget as a person who makes darn close to minimum wage, but I love my job. You know, like I still have to take a day off and that's an impact on your income. Holly, thanks for sharing your story. Congratulations. Justice prevails. Until he does it to somebody else. Oh, now you've opened a hole. Oh, no. There we go. (laughs) We will leave it there. Holly Bosman, thanks for sharing the story. And uh, once again, congratulations on uh, your victory today. 780-6868 already text messages. He was justified in giving her a ticket because she broke the law. It's up to her now to explain that the to the judge and the judge can give her a break or drop the charges. It's not the police officer's job to weigh all the evidence right there on the roadside. Also, the officer can't pick a arbitrary fine amounts because the fine amount is set by the province, but you could probably change what she's charged with doing, which would change the fine mm-hmm. amount uh, that coming in from Ryan at seven eight zero sixty eight sixty eight, And uh, it's been my experience, the exact opposite Police officers do have the ability to use discretion and to whether to give you a ticket or not based on the story that you have. Because a lot of them are interested in knowing what you're up to and what you're not up to and will not give you a ticket, will give you an official warning. So, Ryan, I hate to disagree with you, but I'm going to. I know lots of police officers and lots of them exercise discretion. And some of them I've met because I've been on the wrong side of a decision I've made on the road. Tristan Field-Jones in for Brett McGarry this afternoon. We'll take a break. Come back. We'll update weather, traffic, all sorts of information coming up for you. And from 4 to 7, Julie and Richard. I don't know if we're going to have Julie and Richard in studio today. I just saw them go in another studio maybe to, to speak to somebody that they'll be speaking to later on in their program. But we'll take a pause right now. Mackling and McGarry with uh, guest host Tristan Field-Jones in for Brett. Tristan Field-Jones in for Brett McGarry. Just a couple uh, things we need to take care of before we speak to Richard and Julie. Uh, at least two people immediately said, Greg, uh, if you win your court case, the government should cover your lost wages. That's only fair. Two people saying that after we played uh, that interview with Holly, Holly Bosman. All sorts of uh, different conversations to come out of that. And our friend Jeffrey Forche producing, doing a masterful job today in Master Control, as he always does. What was the Nickelback trivia question, answer, and who's our winner? Well, our winner is Kristen Shanbrowski. And uh, she knew that before the band was called Nickelback, they were called Village Idiots. A lot of people would say it's very apropos name. Of, and maybe of all the people apropos. around this table. I was, I was just going to say, that should be our band name right here. Mm. There you go. Julie? Uh, I'll love take the, the shot first. I love the self-deprecation. What have you got uh, going and uh, what's planned between four and seven as you get us home safe and informed? Uh, some very... Interesting stories, some stories right from the community. One, we will speak with Stanley Ho's girlfriend. She'll give us an update on on how that young man is doing. He, of course, the, the victim of a, of a hit and run. We have charges now in connection with that case. She'll give us an update on how he's doing, their reaction to the arrest, and uh, how fundraising efforts are going for this young man who um, will not be continuing his university career at least for some significant amount of time. She will join us live following the 5.30 news. Uh, several perspectives on what's next for Sears and retail in this country. After the 4 o'clock news, we will tell you here uh, the story of a woman who has been expelled by a daycare. The whole family, including two children, 
because uh, she posted and she confronted the folks at the child care about her child who had been bitten several times. Uh, Both sides of the story coming up after the 4 o'clock news and to win tickets to the Red River X today. Yesterday we had you scream. Yes. Today we want your scream faces. (laughs) Fantastic. So text us pictures of you and your kids, just your scream faces. I had an idea on the way home last night. Uh Maybe for tomorrow. Brace yourselves. You can have people call in and do their... Do you want to go faster? We could do that too. I can't believe you found audio of that. Yep. Outstanding. We did. And we had some great screams. We had a winner yesterday. So today, just text us, yeah, your pictures of making scream your faces. your scream faces if you're on a ride at the X, 204-780-6868. Normally we get inundated. Thanks, Julie. Thank you, Richard. Uh, normally we get inundated with text messages of traffic problems. One of our listeners here wanted to compliment everyone on the perimeter at St. Norbert that are doing the zipper merge exactly as it ought to be done. So I think that's worthy of no kidding. Sending out a shout out to you. It's a bit of a sad thing that we're congratulating people for reading the signs and doing what they should on the road. Tristan, you know, know. you lasted almost three hours without your true self coming through. And there you are at the end of the show. I was my true self the whole time, Greg. We'll see you tomorrow. Well, yeah. Unless there's something you know that I don't. Now, we'll see you tomorrow at 1 o'clock with Greg and Tristan in for Brett McGarry. Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB.